We are in Acts chapter 23, so if you've got a Bible, why don't you find it there? If you don't have a text, we've, we're going to put it up on the screen for you so you can follow along, there, so there's no worries. Acts 23. I, I'm sure that most of you have heard this saying, that situations don't make you, they reveal you. Yes? Um, and we all know this by experience, not just because we've heard it. You turn the heat up in your life a little bit and all sorts of crazy things start coming out of your, your heart and your actions. We live in a very revealing time, don't we, uh, in our world. Tensions and disagreements uh, have revealed all sorts of things in us. But I want you to be encouraged today not to worry, church, because it is in those things that get revealed in situations that God comes to work to reform us to the image of Jesus. You don't know what you don't know, right? I've said this a thousand times before. You don't know how dark you are until you get married. <laughs> Just saying. And little did you know, there's happiness in it, but God is going to reform you. There's holiness that he's working on in your life. And things come out like selfishness and anger and, you know, all that wicked stuff. So these situations do uh, allow God to work on us. The Apostle Paul's no different. I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about when you run into these, these heroes of the faith. If you put them on a pedestal and think, well, they're not like me. There's no way they can have an experience like me. Um, yes, Paul is called. Yes, he's an apostle. Yes, he's super smart. And yes, he's probably way more godly than you or I will be. But he's still a man. And so he goes through lessons, through situations as well. And we're going to see a couple of those today in, in this narrative. The chapter that we're in, verse, chapter 23, is a chapter that rests in the middle of a long narrative. In fact, most commentaries and writers just kind of sort of skip this whole section. Not like skip it, not to deal with it, but race through it. There's six or seven chapters here that are sort of rinse and repeat. Like Paul has been arrested. Paul is going up the authority chain all the way to Rome. That's how it ends in chapter 28. And so we're going to see that a lot in the next uh, a couple weeks. But here's how we find ourselves in this chapter. Chapter 21, we dealt with it a couple weeks ago, is when Paul is arrested. He makes his way to Rome finally in chapter 28. The intention to get to Caesar, we never see that it happens. And the book just ends, okay? All right. And here in the middle is a slice of Paul's life. Part of the story, part of the narrative of how God is shaping him and using his circumstances to reveal things and to make things out of his life as well as to do his work in the world. And uh, so like all narratives, I don't know how you respond to them, there are lessons to learn from narratives. And most people are going to get locked up when they are just reading stories. What am I supposed to do with this? Great that it happened to Paul. What am I supposed to do with it? Let me give you a quick little way to respond to narratives, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament. Clearly, there's way more ways to respond to a narrative than what I'm about to give you, but this will help you get started. When you come to any story, look for the things that are always consistent. For instance, when you see a man or a woman or people, ask yourself these questions, like what's always true about mankind? We were born in sin, right, enslaved to sin, so there's something coming out of people all the time. And then ask yourself the question, what does it say about God? God never changes, God's work in the world has been clear from the very beginning. He is about restoring and redeeming a people for himself, and it shows up over and over again. So if you just start with those two questions, like, what does it say about me? What does it say about him? Then you're going to go a long way to gleaning from, from a narrative, and we're going to try to do that th this morning, all right? Um, let, let me, before we read the beginning of, of chapter 23, let me just kind of get you caught up to the, to the story in Paul's life. 
if you remember back, chapter 21, Paul is in the temple. He's kind of minding his own business. I mean, he's worshiping God, and there's these Jews from Asia who show up, who notice him, who know that somehow he has kind of gone away from their minds, from the faith, and they attack him, and they are beating him silly. Well, the tribune, uh, the Roman tribune at the time, will beat him this, this week. His name's Claudius Lysias. He hears about this ruckus, and he runs down there and sees him getting beat up by these Asian Jews, and so he grabs him to protect him, all right? It is so out of control that they take Paul back to the barracks, which is a very unusual move for them. And Paul, I can just picture him. He's, he's bloodied. He's probably out of breath. He's beaten. I, I don't know how that would look when you get, you know gang jumped like that. But here he is now in this moment in the barracks and he simply says to Claudius, wait, 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 stop. I got something I got to say. I want to talk to them. And so he gives him platform. Maybe he goes outside of the barracks and he stands kind of catching his breath and straightening his clothes and he starts to tell his story. And in fact, we would call it his testimony. Like you're after me. You don't know what's happened. And so he begins to unpack his story. He says, listen, brothers, don't you remember me? Don't you remember I was... If anybody was in, I was in. I persecuted those people of the way, the Christians. I pursued those who called Jesus Lord. I went after them in a more intense way than you could possibly fathom. I went to their destruction. I stood watch and witness and approval over some of their deaths and executions. You remember, right? And by the way, guys, don't you remember that I left by your order to go to Damascus to do some more of that kind of persecution of the way? Let me tell you the rest of the story. On my way to Damascus, Jesus showed up. This man we thought was dead. This thought of perpetrated lie by the Christians that somehow he had risen and not, not stayed dead. No, I met him and I saw him and this is what he told me. And he's called me to go and to take this message to the Gentile world. And at that moment, they lose their minds again. They go, well, he's got to die. This guy's got to go. And so this Claudius Lysimus takes Paul back into the barracks and he decides that the way to get to the truth, something's going on here, was to flog it out of Paul. Now, you know what flogging is. This is what they did to Jesus before they crucified him. You, you die from flogging most of the time. So he thought, we'll just punish him enough till he finally coughs up what the division's about. What's the problem? And Paul, before he is punished, says, hey, wait a minute, are you, are you accustomed to punishing Roman citizens? And they backed up right away because you, you can't, you can't do this without authority from above. You can't punish a Roman citizen unless they're proven guilty. And Paul says, are you, are you accustomed to just flogging your own citizens? And they, they were scared at that point because if they broke that law, they would die. And so they stopped. And thus begins the journey of Paul going up the authority chain all the way to Rome to meet with Caesar eventually to say, Here's, these are the charges. This is what I haven't done. And so that's where we are in this story, chapter 23, all right? You ha might have a text that says, has titled before, mine says Paul before the council. That's what's happening here. We're going to pick it up in 22, verse 30, um, which is the end of the last narrative. Now, remember, this is his day, bad day for him, and this is what happens the next day. Desiring to know the real reason why he's being accused by the Jews, he, that is this Claudius Lysimus that we'll meet in a little bit, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council. Now, let me tell you who these people are. This is the Jewish leadership, chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, everyone who had a hand in leading Israel, they're the council. And so Claudius Lysimus brings them together and puts Paul in the center and says, okay, let's talk. Let's have it out. What's going on? 
And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently, now this is Paul, Paul said, brothers. Well, when you're addressing Israel's leadership, that's a very, very informal way to talk to them. You, you would say things like elders or rulers of Israel, let me present my case. And Paul just comes out and says, hey, bros. <laughs> and here's why he did it. Because he used to be one of them. He knew some writers suggest many of these men that are facing him right now. He recognized their faces. He was there when they had conversations about going after the church, going after the way. So he just addressed him like you would, your friends. Brothers, he says, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Just a tip, that might work sometime when you're in a tough position. Um, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me struck? This was illegal for them to do. According to Jewish law, you could not just randomly strike people, and so Paul calls him out on that. Those who stood by said to Paul now, would you revile or would you insult God's high priest? And Paul said, I, I didn't know. I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Many people kind of question, well, how, how is it possible if Paul knows them as brothers, how would he not know him as high priest? And so here's some suggested answers. That because this was such a quick rallying moment for the leadership of Israel, Ananias didn't wear his robes. And the high priest would always wear these really royal robes and he couldn't spot him. Many people have suggested that Paul notoriously had bad eyesight and so he couldn't see and it was early morning, early light. There's a combination of reasons why maybe he just didn't recognize him as high priest. Either way, he's not lying. And he immediately backs up from that statement and says, I'm sorry, I, di I didn't know because this is what God's word says. You will not speak evil of God's people, of God's leaders. Verse six, and when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees. Now remember who makes up this council, the Sanhedrin council. It is Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and high priests, but Paul recognized that division, and you're going to see here from the text why this is important to the story. He says, all right, um, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is res with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, and here's why. For the Sadducees say that there is no such thing as resurrection, nor angels or spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So get this, there's a theological divide in the leadership of Israel. Some people believe that God does supernatural things, there's things like angels, there's resurrection from the dead, God is miraculous, and the Sadducees go, oh, no, God doesn't do any of that. To, to a Sadducee, it's more of a political thing than a spiritual thing. And here they are both leading, sounds familiar, right? They're both leading the people. They're both leading the people. And Paul lobs into the story, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they go after each other. Do you see it? I mean, if you're talking about trying to get yourself out of hot water, this was a very strategic moment for Paul because he can divert the attention from himself to them. And here's what happens. And it says in verse 9 that a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? That's a possibility. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, <laughs> that's how bad this got. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back to the barracks. 
The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage for you, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Not the best day for Paul. Would you agree? This is, this is difficult. Beaten, accused, arrested, and innocent. Not a good day for Paul. But the opposition doesn't just stop with that. Look what happens now on the next day. There's a, again, titles in the text, a plot now. A plot of assassins to kill Paul. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot to bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat or to drink until they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard of the ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, and Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him, and he does. Paul's nephew shows up, and he, he sees this scandal in his mind, this setup for Paul's destruction, and Paul sends him right away to go to this Claudius Lysimus, which is the tribune, the Roman tribune in charge of this chaos at this moment, and he tells him, listen, you, you don't know this, but I just heard. There's 40 men who've given a, a vow of death, of eating, um, to, to kill Paul. So, pick up the story and how this Claudius Lysimus responds in verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and to bring us safely to Felix the governor. And then he wrote a letter and it said this, Claudius Lysimus to the excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued them having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions about their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there, would be, there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Stop in the story. That's what happens. He catches him, uh, this, this guy Claudius puts together this entourage, this large kind of army to protect Paul and ship him off to Felix so Felix can sort out the issues. And so that's what happens in, in chapter 24, okay? Interesting story. History, yes. All happened, true. Who cares? I mean, when you pick up narratives like this, you go, man, that would be really tough to be Paul. I mean, what, what are you left with after that? Now, if we use the rule of how we deal with narratives, what does it say about us? What does it say about God? What could we learn from this particular story, this day or a couple of days in the life of Paul? I've got a few thoughts that I'll share with you. Um, and I think Paul, through circumstances, is being revealed. Things are being shown and taught to him. Here's the first thing that comes to mind as I read this chapter 23, and it's true for all people, okay? Doing things the right way doesn't guarantee an opposition-free life. Has anybody ever experienced that truth before? A few of us? Think about it. Paul is on God's mission, called by Jesus himself to go into the world and preach the gospel, and he's doing it. 
He is loving his people at high cost to himself. He is giving his life for the fact that he wants his people to know the Messiah like he knows the Messiah. He has worked and suffered for his, the gospel in such tremendous ways, and he is being hated and pursued and attempted murder on his life. You, you know this, but let me just tell you again, just so that we can get it in the air. Jesus' promise to us, church, wasn't to come to me and have a troubled free life, was it? He said, come to me and I'll make you fishers of men. Come to me and I'll give you peace that surpasses all understanding. Come to me and I'll give you joy that you can't find anywhere else. Come to me and I'll give you life. You can trade in that dead stuff for life. That's what he promised, but he never promised free of trouble. And sometimes when we experience Jesus and then we experience trouble, we go, I'm confused, Lord. I prefer it that way. And so we react poorly. Jesus said, just to remind us what he said to his disciples, therefore to us, you will be hated by all by my name, because of my name's sake. That wasn't like a maybe. That was a, a certainty. It will happen. In fact, let me remind you of what Peter said, just in theme of suffering that goes with following. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer. In other words, if you suffer for the right things, good deal. If you suffer for the wrong things, that's what you get. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel at all? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. You know this, don't you? Come on, don't you? Listen to me. You can say the right things and that will never prevent people from listening to you with all those filters. You understand? I can't tell you how many times I'm saying something and I can see filters like I'm looking through this lens and this value and this ideal and this thing. I will not hear what you're saying because I'm going through all these traps. And it happens to you. You can do all the right actions and it won't prevent people from questioning your motives. You can follow the Lord's leading and it won't prevent people from questioning your wisdom. You can do the right thing. Doesn't mean you're gonna avoid trouble. Okay, here's another lesson, and I'll have to explain this one, but uh, it's kind of a word of warning about trusting your own conscience. In verse 3, Paul, when he is now faced with a council, he leads with, I've got a clear conscience. Now, I trust that Paul can do that, and I, and I can trust that Paul is, is accurate, but most of us, let's just admit it, most of our trouble comes when we follow our heart, Right? If, every, if anybody listed out all your scars and regrets, it all starts with, this is what my heart wanted to do. So if you're just trying to use that as authority to do what you want to do, well, you're going to mess it up. That's the reality of our hearts. People, all people, even followers of Christ, use their consciences to defend actions that aren't all like Christ. It happens all the time. 
Listen to uh, what John MacArthur says about this conscience that is not free from the taint of sin. He says that Paul had lived his life with a perfectly good conscience before God. That doesn't mean that all his actions had been always right. It does mean that he felt no guilt or anything for what he had done in spite of the Sanhedrin's accusation. It should be noted, now listen very carefully, that the conscience does not determine whether actions are morally right or morally wrong. Paul's conscience had once permitted him to persecute Christians. Conscience is the faculty that passes moral judgment on a person's actions. But it does so based only on the highest standards of morality and conduct perceived perceived by that individual. It is thus never the voice of God and it's never infallible. A conscience uninformed by biblical truth will not necessarily pass accurate judgments. It's possible for the conscience to be damaged, dysfunctional, even destroyed. The Bible speaks of a weak conscience, a wounded conscience, a defiled conscience, an evil conscience, and worst of all, a seared conscience, one so covered with scar tissue from habitual sin that it no longer responds to the proddings of divine truth. So don't you use your conscience as a defending factor for your actions. There is one thing that makes a clear decision, one thing that makes a clear conscience, knowing and obeying this. Not what you feel. Everything bad in my life has happened because I've gone with how I feel. God's word transforms how we feel, right? Just a word of warning there. Here's another lesson I think we get from this story of Paul's life. Every believer fails once in a while. If Paul, if I could invite him up here today, which would be really cool, but I can't. If I could bring him up here today, I think he would tell you, hmm, wasn't my best day. I'm gonna give you a couple examples from this story and you can see why I bet he puts this day on those days where I could have done better. Um, it starts with verse three, he loses his temper. He is in the position of now presenting his case before the, uh, the council. He starts off with a warm, familiar greeting, brothers, I got a clear conscience, so let me explain, pow, right in the mouth. And what does Paul do? He does exactly what I would do. He strikes back. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. In, in First Peter, um, it tells us that Jesus, how Jesus responded to his accusers. Now listen to this. Totally unique. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to who judges justly. Paul was slapped, and the first thing out of his mouth was a threat and a name. Okay? So why didn't Paul respond like Jesus? Answer? Because he's not. You're smart. He's great, trust me but he's a sinner saved by grace. Paul was God's man, but Paul had reactions like we have reactions. Look at it, I think, as another example of something he regrets. It's in verse six. Now remember, he gets popped in the mouth um, and he now has to start backpedaling from calling the high priest a name. Suddenly it dawns on him who's in the room. We got Pharisees and we got Sadducees. I'm gonna pit them against each other. And so he lobs in them this discussion about the resurrection of the dead, i.e. spiritual or supernatural things, knowing that this, this, the Sadducees would go, there's no such thing. And they start to war with each other. 
I think Paul knew what he was doing. I think he did it for a reason. I think it was a regret. Chapter 24, he says it as much in uh, verse 17 through the end uh, to verse 21. Listen to how this goes. Again, now, Paul has moved down the chain of authorities before Felix, which is coming next week, and this is one of his own statements. This is Paul now. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to the nation and, and to present offerings, okay? That's where we started in verse 21, or chapter 21. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple and without any crowd or turmoil. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Verse 21, uh, other than this, one thing I regret that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. In other words, I think Paul knew that if I lob this in there, they won't look at me anymore. They'll fight with each other. I'll create a mini riot. And I'll kind of back up, you know? Like, they're ready to knock me out and they can just fight. In fact, the text tells us that it went violent between the leaders. And Paul kind of backs out of the story. Now, why would he do that? I'll tell you why. Fear. Insecurity. He did it because he was under the tension of this terrible thing without a way out as far as he could see it. So, man, if they could just understand that they don't even agree about this issue, then they'll war with each other and they'll leave me alone. Now, at some level, this is really wise. But I think it falls into uh, Paul's category according to chapter 24. Yeah, other than that, I probably wouldn't have done that again. I probably would have stand, stood strong and not try to divert the attention because it doesn't move the gospel forward. Um, Kent Hughes says this, and I think it's true, it's worth noting as we make this point that every believer fails. Kent says, God's word does not touch up its pictures of the lives of its saints. When an apostle or a patriarch falls, whether it be David's adultery and then murder of Bathsheba's husband, Jonah's pouting, or Peter's violence, or Paul's failure, it is all honestly recorded. These are men saved by grace just like you, just like me. Make sense? We can all relate to this, can't we? A tense moment, a, a, a moment where there's a quick reaction, a fleshly flinch, for some reason, this is totally weird and sort of related, but if you hit me here, I do that. It happened when, when my kids were little. If they accidentally need me in the nose, I just start throwing punches. It's like this God-given thing. I don't know what it is. But that happens in our heart. Like somebody hits us in our spirit. Somebody doesn't give me the respect. Somebody doesn't say the right thing. Somebody marginalizes me. Somebody, somebody, somebody. Whitewashed piece of junk. I feel better. It happens, yeah? Okay, here's another lesson. Every believer is afraid once in a while. I think if I were to draw a circle around the point of this section that I'd like you to memorize and remember, it'd be verse 11. Listen to this. This is an amazing moment. Now, this is Paul's bad day, and this is how it ends. The following night, the Lord, Jesus, stood with him. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in reality before Paul and he says this to him, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It was an amazing night for Paul, wouldn't you say? After a horrible, horrible day, Jesus appears and he says, take courage. Why would he say take courage? Because he's afraid. Who needs courage? 
Not just random things we say. We say it to people who are downtrodden, people who are concerned, people in fear. I think Paul was worn out. I think he was discouraged. It was a bad day. If he's looking in his own life, if he's reading his own journal, he's going, I could have done so much better. I thought I was so farther ahead than this. He was probably discouraged. If he was certain that all these trials would equal his death, I'll bet he was afraid. There was a combination of reasons why Jesus said what he said. And it's not just, it's not just the things that Paul dealt with in here. Clearly, that's true. Sure, all that stuff out there. Isn't that what happens to us? You pick up the newspaper, you start reading, go, man, I'm so worn out. I'm so discouraged by this. And you go live your life that day and you come home and you look in your mirror and you go, and I did that too. And I did this. I reacted that way. I was angry about this and I didn't love there. And you kind of go, okay, (laughs) I don't have any kind of happiness anywhere. It's bad out there. It's bad in here. Then if that's your experience, if it's ever been your experience, then hear the words of Jesus. Hear the words. Take courage. In the original language, this is one word, not two. And the only person in the entire New Testament that uses it is our Lord Jesus, and he only uses it five times. Listen to how he uses it. To the paralytic man who was brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, the man who's been paralyzed his whole life, and his friends bring him on a cot and drop him in front of Jesus, say, Jesus, what can you do for this man's crippled life? Jesus says to this man in front of all these witnesses, very clearly, take courage, that one word, your faith has healed you, or saved you, or forgiven you. To the woman in chapter 9 of Matthew as well, the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, remember that story? Jairus, the, the leader had a daughter that was sick and he was begging Jesus to come before she dies and this woman interrupts the trip and she just reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment believing the superstition that if you touch the hem of a righteous man you'll get some miracle and she's immediately healed. Jesus turns around to find out who touched her and he says to this woman, take courage, one word, your faith has healed you. The disciples were told after a very busy day of ministry, get in the boat, go across the sea. I'm going over here to pray. Jesus goes up on the mountain. They go on the sea, and a storm comes up. A big storm comes up, and these tough guy fishermen are afraid of losing their life. Jesus walks out on the water to them. Remember that? Jesus shows up in the midst of that terror, and he says, one word, take courage. I'm with you. In John chapter 16, it was when Jesus is declaring the story of what is about to happen, why he's there and where he's going, and, and, the, and the pain and the suffering involved in that trip. And so I can just imagine men who've given three plus years of their life to follow this rabbi. Now hear the story of the rabbi's death, willing sacrifice, and they're troubled. They gotta be troubled. And Jesus says to them, I've said these things to you that in you, you might have peace In the world, you will have tribulation, but take courage. One word, I have overcome this world. That's the only places it's ever used in all of the New Testament. And Jesus shows up for Paul on his worst day, maybe, and says the same word. Now, if you were here at the very beginning of our Acts study, I told you I'm not interested in doing a history lesson, although history is good. Church history is great. But I I don't want to do that. I don't feel called to do that. I want to ask questions about this early church and say, God, could you do those things in us? Remember the phrase we called it? God, make us the exceptional church. You remember that? You want you to know what I've learned over the last several months about that request? To be the exceptional church is really, really hard. Because you can tell, 
You can read the scriptures and you go, God, this is what you want us to do. And then you don't feel like doing it. And you tell all your brothers and sisters that you love, here's what God's telling us to do. And they don't want to hear it. And we don't get any better maybe or not as good as we could, as fast as we should. I don't know. It's hard work to be the exceptional church, to be confronted about what I'm not and what we could be. If you ever feel like that, ever at all, then I want you to listen to the one word Jesus says to Paul. Take courage. Take courage. I read a devotion this week that really helps kind of clarify what that thought means, why we can take courage. The text reveals some of it to us. One big reason is Jesus is with us. The reason why you and I can take courage is we have the presence of God in our life, amen? Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. So just think about this for a second. The God of all creation who knew you before you were born and knit you together in your mother's womb, who's got a plan for your life. It's all organized. This God, this God who knows everything and holds it together by the power of his word. He never gets tired. He never gets weary. He never gets disinterested. He's all over you all the time. His story is your story, right? And he's always with you. You want to know where courage comes from? That's where it comes from. Not from circumstances changing or things getting better or me even getting better. No matter how it goes, He's why. Amen? Why do we take courage? Because God has a plan for us. Here he says to Paul, listen, take courage. I know you've been faithful in Jerusalem, but you've got to go to Rome. I've got a plan for you. And it's true for all of us. We might not go to Rome. We might go home. We might go tell somebody we've yet to tell about Jesus. We might show up at work and start doing work a little bit different. Different than the world would do work? Without any concern about your profit or your growth or your future kind of, kind of establishment in the company? Because all you care about, one thing, glory of God on display. God's got me. You've got a plan for my life. Why do we take courage? Because Jesus has overcome the world. He said this, I've already repeated it uh, or said it to you in John 16. I said these things to you so you'll have peace. I've overcome it. Whatever it is that pushes against us, that makes us afraid or makes us timid or makes us cautious, we can move forward because he's overcome those things. When we were studying the book of Romans, we made this super emphasis, but why do we take courage? Because nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing. Listen to the apostle in his statement of that unbelievable truth. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what happens, church, no matter what happens, you always have the love of Christ. Amen? And one last thing, he promised to strengthen us. Isaiah 41, fear not for I'm with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. That's the promise of God. So if Paul was here, what would he really say? I think he would say when I was in it, when it was on me, when it was a bad day, when it went down in my journal is don't repeat. 
God showed up. And he said one word to me, take courage, I've got you. Need to hear that yet, church? Let's pray together and thank you for that truth. God, I thank you so much for the reality of of the story of Paul's life and how it so reflects our particular experience. Yeah, there's, there's some differences, maybe some big differences, but there's some similarities. Lord, we uh, in moments at times feel the weight of the world we live in. We feel many times the weight of our own life and choices, our minds, our emotions, and, and they're in conflict with you sometimes. And we're worn out from time to time. So God, let your church hear your words to us to take courage in your power, in your will, in your love and affection for your people. God, we're here because of that. That's the only reason we stand. We love Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen.